Uh, well, good morning. Uh, welcome to today's webinar, uh, Horns of Plenty, Unicorns, Novels and the Changing Company Valuation Landscape. I'm delighted uh, to be here, uh, delighted you've been able to join us, and Neil Crabb, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Frontier IP Group PLC. Um, just by way of introduction, um, you'll probably have come across me before. I'm Mike Wardle, I'm the CEO of the ZN Group, um, and we uh, run this series of webinars uh, with the FS Club, which we, <coughs> which we run as well. Um, the program for today is very simple. My job is to do a bit of housekeeping, uh, an introduction, and then to get out of the way uh, so that we can give plenty of time to hear from Neil. He'll give a presentation for around 20 minutes, and then we'll have plenty of time for questions and answers uh, after Neil's presentation. If you haven't used GoToWebinar before, you'll see on the dashboard on screen uh, a question box where you can type in your question or your comment or your observation, um, and you can do that at any point during uh, the webinar. So please do, if you have a thought that strikes you, uh, please get your question in uh, as we move through the presentation. Uh, and we'll field as many of those as we can uh, afterwards. Um, I'll say a brief thank you to our sponsors. We're very lucky at uh, the FS Club to have a variety of sponsors who enable us to run this series of webinars and to range quite widely over finance, economics, uh, science and technology. Um, and we really are grateful uh, for their support. Um, just another piece of housekeeping to say that uh, the session is being recorded today and will be posted on our website in a couple of days' time um, in case you want to go back and uh, listen to something you might have missed or in case you have friends or colleagues um, who you would uh, think would find this uh, talk interesting. So that's all by way of my introduction, really. Um, and just to say I'm delighted to be able to welcome today uh, Neil Crabb, Chief Executive Officer uh, and Founder of IP. Um, and Neil, over to you um, to have your thoughts about valuation, unicorns and novels. Thanks very much. I will just share my screen. Um, presentation. One second. Can you just confirm you're seeing that, Mike? Is that okay? That's great. Thank you. Excellent. Right. So um, today I'm going to speak to you on uh, the unicorn phenomenon, which I'm sure everybody is, is familiar with. Uh, what we see as some of the challenges that arise from it and perhaps an alternative way of thinking about how uh, value can be looked at and uh, indeed managed uh, in the uh, venture uh, space. But my background um, uh, is, has been around both quoted actually and unquoted technologies. I used to be a fund manager, uh, then founded a company called Sigma Capital Group, and then latterly um, Frontier IP Group, which is quoted on the London Stock Exchange. And our entire business is around uh, enabling uh, the commercialization of university-originated IP. So very much playing in this space that includes the unicorn area. And indeed, we've had uh, one unicorn already come out of our own portfolio. Uh, so just to get some, some, some uh, framework here, um, where Unicorn came from in investment terms, it's only as recently as 2013 that um, Eileen Lee at a, a US VC firm called Cowboy Ventures coined the phrase. And at that point, it was meant to describe specifically American software companies that were um, had become valued at a, a billion dollars uh, within 10 years of formation, either privately or publicly. The intention, her intention at least, was that that was reporting on a rare phenomenon that the people were targeting. So at the time, there were only, I think, 39 companies that met the definition. Um, why the 10 years, you might say, well, 
um, as Jeff Bezos and the details have observed, you know, overnight success takes about 10 years, actually. These things don't happen immediately. It's challenging forming companies and building them up. Uh, so that 10-year period is a reasonable estimate. Indeed, it might even be that it, it often takes longer than that. Uh, and I, I think that's one of the challenges for the venture community, actually, is that they're, they're not really, um, they, they'd rather have success sooner than later, and they want really outlying success. So um, looking since 2013 and how that's become really part of the common parlance, this unicorn phenomenon of, of the investment community, and indeed, uh, in many ways, the central objective, what we've seen is a huge increase in the rate of um, formation of unicorns, um, some of which have got public and exited, some of which have become unicorns and ceased to be unicorns, but you can see there a graph that just lays out the cumulative number of unicorns building up. Uh, and so there was this, this really strong um, sort of exponential acceleration that was running uh, up until um, 2021. And then, of course, as we've seen um, financial markets tighten, that rate of formation has slowed, which is why I think this is a really good point to start um, rethinking a little about what we understand about this phenomenon. Um, but, um, it definitely was in runaway mode. So I mean, I was talking to one VC and say, oh, we don't do unicorns anymore. We're targeting decacorns. And what's a decacorn? Well, that's something that's worth 10 billion or more. Um, and there were already, we've seen 60 of those. Um, and even um, we've seen some hecticorns emerge. So SpaceX would be one that you'd be familiar with. Uh, and then we've had in China, we've got um, the company that's the leader in the drones space. Uh, so, um, uh, essentially that that's not really well you know if, if we remember what valuation means that should be the net present value of the future profits so these are enormous numbers and if you think about a billion as a thousand million um, many of these companies are loss making and yet they've got enormous valuations so there's, there's a real pause for thought there I think around um, whether this is justified or not um, and indeed, what we've seen is as conditions have tightened in public markets, you know, we've had inflation emerging, suddenly money has a cost. And we should remember that we've perhaps had a 30 year run of declining interest rates. And even with the global financial crash, you know, because interest rates were too low, the policy response was to take rates lower still. So while money was free, it's not entirely surprising that equity valuations got inflated. But now we find ourselves in, a, in an environment where there are also geopolitical problems. Uh, there's economic weakness coming through. Say inflation is a, is a factor. And that's remember, even when you see the headline rate, that's not evenly distributed. There are some areas where prices have doubled or trebled or industries have been really affected, not just by inflation, but lack of availability of the goods themselves that are, are being priced. And what that's mapping to is that we're seeing investment in the unicorn space beginning to decline, so a 40% fall um, last year. Um, and uh, I think there's an argument that there's, there's certainly more to run on that. So you can see in the graph there that we clearly had a bubble um, peaking in 2021. Uh, and the question now is, you know, are we at steady state sort of in, in the 2018 to 23 period, or in fact, are we gonna see something retrench further than that? Um, so looking at that fall, um, I, I think we could see worse 
to come. Um, and people like Morgan Stanley commenting on on that, for example. So here's a scary thing. Obviously, in public markets, things reprice immediately. But in, in the private market, people have thought of it as more stable, but it's just priced less frequently. It's not more stable. Valuations are subject to exactly the same factors. Uh, and specifically, over half of American unicorns haven't repriced since we had these much lower interest rates. So that's a real pause for concern. If, if you, you take any kind of financial model and you suddenly input um, you know, 5% base cost of capital rather than 1%, then clearly that could have a really big knock-on effect um, on the valuation. Um, and, and then the ones that have repriced since have been repricing down quite commonly. And to the extent there is secondary trading, um, if you looked at the price that shares in these companies are changing, changing hands in the secondary market, that implies that there's an awful lot of value fall still to come. And a lot of companies that are claiming to be unicorns will find out that when they reprice, they no longer are. So that itself is also a real cause for concern. So if the unicorn phenomenon has been a function of um, what we've seen in the over-exuberance in markets and extremely low interest rates mean people have been chasing return. This led us to thinking about, well, is there an alternative approach? Obviously, you know, the unicorn's a mythical beast. It doesn't exist. The, the, the billion number is arbitrary. Um, and it doesn't really give you predictive or um, uh, some sort of management input as to how you think about and drive valuation. So... Um, and obviously, it's, it's, it's become, as opposed to describing a rare phenomenon, it's become an objective in its own, its own right, which I think is unhelpful. So that led us to thinking about, well, you know, what have the Romans ever done for us, to uh, paraphrase the, the famous Monty Python sketch, and, and uh, aside from Londinium as well, um, uh, we tried to look at, is there an alternative? And to the Roman theme, uh, if you take unicorn in Latin, the equivalent word is monoceros, and it turns out that that's a, a real creature. Um, and if you don't know, that's that's the narwhal. Um, and we think actually this is a better framework to take what perhaps is a relatively dry topic, but understand it in a more uh, informative way. So um, looking overall at why that's relevant, um, if we take... Um, the whole point around this distribution, it's clear, and I think it will remain true, having having said that specifically, I don't think that unicorns are the way to go. You know, it's clear that the objective of venture capital is to create immensely valuable companies. I just don't agree with the arbitrary number of a, of a billion. And it's clear that um, those outperformers do drive portfolio performance. It's also true that what you tend to see, though, is a tale of failure, and there's various investment phrases, you know, lemons ripening early and such like, that tale of failure will emerge early. And at that stage, you don't know what the big winners are. And if you think about the unicorn and its evolution, it's born with a tail, but not with the horn. Um, and then that horn develops over time. And so you see a change if you think about the shape, the outline of the unicorn as being the, the distribution curve of results. You see this progression towards um, outperformance on the right hand, although the tail of failure may begin to grow. So 
understanding why we see that shape in investment markets and it's you'll find it in biotech you'll find it in general equity markets it's quite a common uh, phenomenon across um, how these things work it actually in a whole range of areas the reason you see that shape is when you have something that is driven by multiple factors um, so when there are in, in, in the venture space you, know, you need to have good technology you need to be good at cost management you need to make sure that you've got a product market fit. You need to make sure that you know how to sell your product. All of these factors feed in, but probabilities don't add up in a kind of weighted scorecard approach. They multiply. And the consequence of that, and this is where the Taylor failure comes from, is that if you're really bad at one area, you're multiplying by zero, you're bad at that thing. And that leads to complete failure overall of the project, even if you're good in certain other areas. Conversely, if you're good at everything, you don't just outperform by a bit, you outperform by a lot because those factors multiply together and deliver, deliver outperformance. So um, this framework, aside from just picking a value compared to the unicorn, it gives you a way of thinking about what um, drives success, but importantly also what drives failure. And the, the, one of the problems or challenges with the unicorn approach is that people just think about winning and they don't think about how they avoid losing. Um, so um, we feel this is a, a more useful approach, if you like, to understanding what, what the components of performance actually are. So if you look then at that, the landscape that we're in currently, you've got this distribution of returns. Um, it's probabilistic in nature. But one of the things that's changing in the current market is that the variables have become less favorable that feed into that. So the cost of capital has increased. There's greater economic uncertainty. There's less money going into the venture community. Um, all of these factors are inputs to your model. And if you think about it probabilistically, you should be using something like Monte Carlo modeling to create the distribution for each individual investment, as well as for an overall portfolio. Well, that probabilistic return is more challenged than it was because the inputs have become lower or more, more, more difficult. Um, now, what we're seeing is already that casualties are emerging that are um, showing that, in fact, the, the, the inputs that we're using previously were flawed. So WeWork is a very good example. It got to a peak 48 billion valuation. It was allegedly going to uh, float on uh, the NASDAQ. And then suddenly investors looked and said, hold on. This is a company that doesn't make a profit, has never made a profit. Uh, that valuation represents the sum of the future profits in theory, discounted back. It doesn't make sense. It ended up that it had to write down its valuation lot. It did a SPAC reverse onto the, the US market and it's still gone bankrupt. And there are other examples that come through. Babylon Health, which originated in the UK, you know, doing online healthcare, you'd have thought that would have been good in, in COVID times and yet still couldn't make a profit as again ended up failing. Um, a particular favor we have is a company called Zoom Pizza, which had robots that put tomato sauce on pizza. I mean, it got to a couple of billion valuation. You know, this is, this is kind of crazy in our view. Um, and it also has failed. And then we've seen companies like Beyond Meat that have struggled with negative gross margins. So in other words, even if they grow, uh, while all the emphasis has been on sales grows, if, if they grow, they'll lose more money because um, they don't make money on marginal sales. Um, 
So Financial Times and others have commented on this as, as you know, we've had a um, something called greater fool theory. You, you've backed something on the basis that you think the sales will grow, not the profit, but the sales will grow, and therefore somebody will pay a higher price later, um, even if that sales growth is not profitable, and even in some cases if it's not marginally profitable. Um, and I, I think what that's uh, as money's acquired a cost. People have started to think about, well, actually, where's the value in this? So a, a, a move down the profit and loss account to start thinking about, is margin being generated? And is this ultimately capable of being profitable? In other words, if I take what it's doing today and I expand it, will it reach a point when there's a crossover into profitability? And in the current environment, that approach is taking much greater emphasis, I believe. So... Um, what can companies do to manage that? We think there should be a change of emphasis towards understanding what they're bad at as well as what they're good at. And that will evolve over time. So if you've got a technology startup, it doesn't need to be good at marketing at the start until it's got its product ready to go to market, but it needs to be planning for that to come in later. They need to be very efficient about the use of capital as well, because that's a scarce input. And they need to work out actually which variables matter at each point in time, which is not easy. Um, and once you've understood that, then understand how you can vary them and how you can be good at each one, or at least avoid being bad. Because as I said earlier, if you're, if you're bad, there's a times by zero in the equation, you'll end up failing. Fear is also clearly causing delay in the current market. Uh, and if you're able to go and say, well, I know people are nervous about the market, but here's all the factors that have impact and I'm actively managing them. I think that's a, a useful way of um, reducing that fear factor. You know, investors are definitely taking longer. Um, they're more worried than optimistic. Um, it's the old sort of Mr. Market thing. Um, uh, but if you can be concrete about what the factors are that, that impact on your performance, how you're managing them, then you've got a better dialogue for reducing that fear factor. And then finally, if we look at from an investor point of view, where is there benefit and what can we do about it? You know, I think London has a, a role to play, or financial markets generally have a role to play, both as being a better gatekeeper um, to quality. Uh, and, and I would say that, you know, for example, we saw the SPAC phenomenon I mentioned in relation to, to WeWork, dropping the quality of the rules that give you admission. In my view, it's a race to the bottom and those rules have only ever come into existence because there's a reason for them. You know, nobody sort of sat down and made up rules that weren't required. Usually what happened is somebody lost money, so they made up a rule to try and prevent the same loss happening in the future. So I think that quality threshold is, is important. That requires also building up of the understanding of what's happening. And equally, back to the 10-year point, this stuff takes time and long-term views are important. And the venture market generally has been quite skewed towards, you know, they're under pressure from their investors who want immediate returns. I think it's reasonable to want excess returns, but it's not reasonable to want excess returns immediately. That's not really um, rational. So some of the moves that we're seeing around getting in, in the UK, getting pension fund money, for example, committed into more into this space, I think are very helpful um, and create the bedrock for, um, improved performance, but it's vital that we do that not just optimistically about making more unicorns, but it's it's against a framework of improving the quality and managing downside um, 
uh, risk. So um, hopefully that's given you an insight into a slightly different approach to uh, how we manage in this environment. But I'd be very happy to take um, questions and uh, hand back to Mike to um, coordinate those. Well, thank you so much, Neil. Um, it's really useful overview as uh, uh, to the approach that you're uh, promoting. Uh, Hugh Purse has got a question. He's ask, asking in the charts that you were showing us, uh, what portion of the valuation numbers charts were just USA, or is this world you know, glo globally? globally? The, effects are, the effects are global with a lack. So actually, there's nothing that you see in the US numbers that you don't see internationally. One thing you do have to watch is that obviously the venture market, unlike the quoted markets, there is a lag in getting data. So um, because companies report in arrears and people can be a little bit secretive. So I, I would say that um, look at multiple data sources and, and recognize that lag effect. I mean, I, I mentioned that in the context of things not having repriced. Clearly, the valuation has fallen, just nobody's recognizing it. And we've seen that with... Um, for example, um, Graphcore in the UK. So one investor has written that off, another has written it down by 25%. They can't both be right. Okay, mm. so um, be cautious about how you look at the numbers, but uh, but it's definitely a global effect. Thank you very much. Um, it, you, you talked about some of the areas that investors need to look at or consider when they're putting money uh, into a company, sort of marketing, cost management, etc. Are there some areas that are more important than others? And for very early stage companies, you know, where should investors be putting their attention? Yeah, so I think this is about managing risk, actually. We focus a lot on this. So the, the danger with the unicorn phenomenon is that you try to get big, very big, very quickly. And if you look at, for example, university spin-outs where we're active, um, we're more, more focused on the efficiency of capital. So there's no point adding on heavy marketing expense or bringing in your marketing-oriented CEO until you've got something that's ready to scale. Um, now, the venture community doesn't necessarily like that because they make money on the management fees. So actually, they're incentivized to an approach that is inefficient with capital to the extent that they get paid a management fee on that capital. If you're an, an LP or an investor, you ought to be more worried about the return on capital as opposed to the amount of capital deployed. And so that's why I was saying at the start, these factors evolve over time. So at the start, you should be focused much more on does my technology work, but not just generally, in a specific instance, love one customer to death, make it work with them, and then work out how you roll it out to more, and then you work out how you do adjacent markets. I mean, Jeffrey Moore's written extensively on this in looking at crossing the chasm and things like that. Um, it, it's quite clear that the companies that are successful don't try and do everything at once. Um, and the danger with the unicorn phenomenon is that you're trying to maximize your total available market, so you end up doing too many things badly, um, uh, rather than working out what am I going to do, uh, you know, most companies also miss their business plan, right? So you need to be planning that you can't plan for what you don't know, but you can plan that likely something will disrupt you. And if you ramp the burn rate too quickly in a market that costs a lot of money, you should expect to, if you go back to your investor and say, look, I've missed my milestones and I need more money, that that's going to be an extremely difficult discussion. If you go back and say, you know, right, it's going to take longer, but we haven't wasted lots of your money. You've got a framework for saying, this is what I was trying to achieve and I can understand. So I, th I think it's about getting the um, resource deployed correctly for the stage that you're at um, mm -hmm. uh, and building on that. 
Thank you very much. Um, Gavin Lillywhite has asked to what degree, if any, is the sort of hype around unicorns and the time taken to reevaluate to a more meaningful valuation driving the exodus of IPOs and listings from London to the US? Do you think there's a linkage there? Um, so I think the fundamentals are true. You know, what I've presented in, 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 in the deck is true wherever you are, but it is clear that I think the US has some advantages. So, for, for example, it has a homogeneous market. Um, so for companies that have a network effect to their business, um, and many companies, every, lots of companies try to claim they do, but they don't really. If they have a consumer network effect, the US market is the right place to build because you don't have to do different language variants and all these kinds of things. So um, I think there are markets where the US is probably better. And if you look at where we've had success in the UK, ARM, for example, the consumer doesn't see that. So it's in 250 billion devices, but the, the language thing isn't a factor. Whereas if you look at um, you know, Google or whatever, well, that originated in the US, not surprising because there's a language effect. So I think that the US market is right for some. There's an understanding question also here around, you know, if you ring up a US, UK broker and say, can I speak to the tech analyst? You might get through, put through. Try doing that in the US and they'll say, well, which technology, what do you want to know? And again, they've got a scale that allows deeper understanding. So I think we need to pick our fights rather than uh, what we're good at in the UK, rather than just assuming that we'll be good at everything. Thank you. Uh, Dan Feeney's um, <clears throat> turning to Uber, uh, you know, the classic case of subsidised cheap affairs to capture market share um, seems unsustainable yeah. or crazy with the cost of capital now much higher um, following the you know, zero interest uh, era. And how can a startup sh sort of shift the mindset <clears throat> from growth to profits? You know, what does what needs to happen within the startup company to make that the real focus? So I think one of the factors is that we're seeing increasing questions from funders about forward funding risk. So they used to just assume that somebody would pay a higher price later. And now they're saying, oh, but if I put the money in now, A, why will it be higher? But B, will you get the money at all? So if you've got something that explains that you've minimized your forward funding requirements, because the usual premise is that somebody else is going to pay a higher price later, but not that it'll be worth more later, that somebody else will pay a higher price later. So if you can show that you are managing and reducing your forward capital requirements now that money has a cost and that you've got line of sight to being sustainable, self-sustaining, not relying on further equity inputs. I think that chimes increasingly with investors. And while we're seeing a, definitely a period of um, relocation in thinking, um, I think that will be a trend. It's worth saying as well, that if you think about the global financial crash, it's probably true, I don't have a number for this, but it's probably true that most people by number working in venture have never been through a full market correction because that was you know, more than a decade ago and the industry's grown since. So I think there's going to be a little bit of, we saw this back in 2000, there will be shell shock, um, frankly. Um, and investors aren't a monolithic bunch. Um, we're going to see different responses. Some who've been through downturns before, before that kind of get how to cope and others who will just exit the market because the way they made money just doesn't translate to the current environment. Uh, Clive, Clive Bullen uh, is asking, you know, how many unicorns come to the London market? And do you think there's ways in which London can encourage more, albeit focusing on companies that are more likely to succeed in the long term, uh, rather than just go for valuation growth? Yeah, so, so the quality is really important because, you know, the biggest um, IPO last year was cab payments, I think, which has had a massive collapse in value. Surprise, surprise, doing um, finance um, 
in an unclear regulatory environment to um, uh, Africa turned out not to be um, quite the sustainable business that they thought it was, you know. So, so we've got to be quite careful around the quality threshold. And if you get the quality threshold right, then the volume will come. I don't think you can say, well, we need more unicorns and then we'll get more. I think you need to say, you know, if we get quality business and that reputation for, for um, maintaining that, then investors will see an excess return. Because we not only had the UK market being for IPOs being down last year, but those that did happen delivered a lower return than our international comparators. So don't be surprised then when if, if, if investors keep losing money, they're not going to want to keep taking the bet. So we need to follow focus first of all on investor return. And if you get the investor return right, then the volume will follow. If you do it the other way around, it's going to go wrong. Thank you very much. Uh, Nikki Holthausen moves on to the question of buy and hold investing. Um, and for people who are sort of long-term investors, how would you suggest that valuations should be determined or what approach should a buy and hold investor take to uh, trying to work out what value to put on their investment? So um, I think, first of all, I, I agree with buy and hold as a general point, you know, and, and there's loads of evidence that active management and chopping and changing from the quoted side in particular doesn't work. So I, I think um, if, if the underlying point is, is buy and hold right, my gut feel is it minimizes transaction costs. And, and you can also understand so many things. So the next thing is, if you're going to buy and hold something, try and do things that you understand. So we in our business only focus on certain what we call clusters, where we understand if it's outside that, we don't do it. Um, so you want to try and get some kind of knowledge advantage. Um, and the more things you do, the less you can have a knowledge advantage because there are only so many hours in the, in the day, basically. Um, so, so the next thing is to say, can I actually see how long-term this would be viable if it continues to grow. What's its locked-in advantage? Its moat is what's classically talked about. But just um, fag packet, you know, taking what I know today. So, for example, if a business has negative gross margins, you absolutely have to convince yourself why it's going to be different in the future um, before you should invest at all, even if the sales are growing. Um, you need to think about risks. So, are they going to do something next that they haven't done in the past? So, one of the Beyond Meat challenges was. They're trying to, why do they have negative gross margins? Because they're trying to do manufacturing, which they haven't done before. And so the challenge then is you're doing a different set of risks. You know, one thing to formulate a product, another thing to do the marketing, another thing to make it. So understand whether there's a discontinuity in risk and whether you're being compensated for that, I would say. Thank you very much. Um, Shane Drillian's come um, to say, do you think we've seen the end of blitz scaling as a growth strategy for startups and small, small companies? Um, so, I, that, that now yeah. so I think it works in certain markets. So where you've got network effects and you get an atrophying over time of the customer base, then I think blitz scaling does make sense. There are other businesses who claim to be platforms but aren't really where it doesn't make sense. So for example, if you have a product that you only buy every um, seven or eight years, right? blitz scaling probably doesn't make sense because you spend money acquiring the customer by the time it comes around to them to reorder, th there's no benefit. On the other hand, take someone like an Amazon. Well, it's about cost of sales. They'll come back repeatedly. You want you, you want to acquire customers before they atrophy. Bit scaling makes sense. So I think you've got to think about it. It's not an either or, you know, was it right or was it wrong? I think it needs to be put in the context of the business model. And in general, businesses that generally have consumer-oriented network effects 
um, or B2B, but where there's a large customer base, so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a large number of customers, not a large value per customer, then I think blitz scaling does make sense. In lots of other markets, it never made sense. Um, Hugh Pess has come back to, to ask, do you have an idea of what the average level of free market equity is when unicorns are listed? Uh, and if the levels are low, doesn't that tend to create overvaluations and price volatility? So, you know, free market equity is... It, it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. This, this is a, this whole free float point. It's, it's free float and also how sticky is um, the base. So the, the lock, uh, the lock-in periods are shorter in the US generally than here. Um, a lot of market generally are for example, looking for a 25% plus free float. I, I would agree that if, if you have a tiny amount being floated, I mean, I think it's one in Asia that's got a 1% free float or something, it's got a massive valuation. Well, clearly it's a false price, you know. Um, it, I don't know what it should be, but it, it is definitely not proper price discovery in that environment. So I think the general point is um, correct. Um, I think the other thing for people that are floating companies is to bear in mind that if you're not selling at float, you want um, people to feel positive about the company so you can sell in the future. And, and, and I'm running a quoted company. Fund managers remember you first for what your share price has done relative to the price when they bought, and only secondly for what you actually do. So if you've made them money, then you get a favorable hearing. And if you lost some money, then you don't. Um, and that's actually irrespective of how you've done in the business. That's, that's the mindset because that's the thing that they're exposed to. So I think overvaluation isn't necessarily even in the interests of the people that are bringing companies to market unless they're exiting at that point. Yeah. Um, just, just talking about London again, I mean, sort of, um, do you think there's more that London could be doing to improve access to capital for early stage and growing companies? Um, you know, and, and what's the role of the city really in, in you know, being part of the answer? Yeah, so I think um, we've seen a, a huge weighting towards private equity and we've seen a halving of the numbers of public companies, which I think is unhelpful, um, especially where the motivation for that has been that you can overgear on cheap money. And that's where the investment return has been coming from rather than outperformance. Against that, at the earlier stage, these things do need long term capital. I think they are capable of delivering excess return, provided that capital is managed efficiently. And the moves to, for example, see greater pension fund allocation mm. make a lot of sense. And it comes against a backdrop where, for example, there's been a huge switch away from equities into bonds. And frankly, buying bonds at one or two percent is like picking up pennies in front of the roller coaster. It's obvious that you'll see reversion to the norm at some some point. So the idea that bonds were less risky, it's always about price relative to expected return. And, and, and this allocation that we've seen into the bond market, while it was driven by governments wanting to borrow more money and all the rest of it, I, I don't think it's a very bad thing for investors. Because you, 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 the most you can make is the interest rate that you receive, and you can lose, you know, multiples of your money. We've seen some gilts, for example, in the UK have lost more than half their money. Well, you know, lending to a government that's not in trouble and losing half your money, something's been wrong about the risk management. So I think more, and it only takes a modest allocation. What's important, though, is that that's built up over time, not done in one go, because that will create over, you know, if there's a wall of money comes in and no ability to handle it, that will have its own problems. It'll create an overvaluation. So what we really want to see, I would say, is that pension funds and life funds and such like gradually increase their allocation to this space um, so that the expertise can build up. And I think if we do that well, there's a real opportunity for sustainable return. And it has social benefits around job creation, all the rest of it. We know the SME impact on, on that area. 
but it should be done as a long-term industrial policy, not as a one-off fix-it for what's a perceived problem. Um, we, we talked a bit about buy and hold investment. I'm just wondering whether you think venture capital investors need to have a bit more patience um, in terms of the rate and the speed of return that they get for their investment. Yeah, I, I, I mean, clearly, it, it, so it partly depends what stage you're coming in. So if you're a series C or D investor, you're effectively playing in that sort of middle ground and, you know, the lifetime to realisation should be truncated. But I think for the earlier stage investment, um, there is clearly a challenge that the money wants a return more quickly than often the companies are capable of building value. Um, and compound interest is a really powerful thing. So it doesn't mean you've made a bad investment. You've just got to be willing to wait for your return. Um, back to your policy point, I think it would be helpful if, for example, the government was to say, not mandate the people to this, but say, um, well, if you're a pension fund, you're getting tax benefits and those tax benefits rely on you putting some money into long term capital and you can choose not to, you'll just pay a higher tax rate, right? That's the kind of thing that should be done to encourage the right behavior. Um, we face it because we were often in companies at formation. So well, the one we had that Goldman Sachs on NASDAQ, you know, it was founded in 2012. We were one of the founding shareholders. It didn't IPO until 2021. Well, everybody made money along the way, but you had to have that, that view of that kind of timescale. Um, mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, you're in one thing and its value keeps compounding up each year. So you don't, you know, if you take the money out, you've got to put it somewhere else. And that's really, that's in the interest of the venture manager. It's not necessarily interest of the, of the limited partners. So I think limited partners need to set a framework. You know, VCs are delivering the product that the LPs are asking for, right? Mm. Um, if you're the limited partner, you need to be going and say, I'm committing for this period and here's the framework which I'm willing to do it. It needs to be driven by the money as much as the management of the money. Yep. Thank you. And you know, just speaking, you know, from the perspective of an investor and someone who's you know, looking uh, for investments, uh, what do you think is going to be the biggest risk over the next year, two years, in terms of making investments and coming to to, to new investment? So, I talked about that relocation, and, and the reality is we've got a pool of companies, too many of which have been funded, who have too high a burn rate. So there's a lot of noise in the market because at the moment you're getting approached by companies that, you know, um, that there's just too many of them. So, so, so it, it can be that you end up wanting to, um, as an investor, just pick the lowest price thing because there's, there's, there's value on offer. Um, now, there was a, a venture manager who I won't name who set up a fund back in 2000 and they were asking for a 10 times liquidation preference on the things that they could back. And that fund ended up not performing very well, despite the fact that, you know, market pricing had collapsed post the internet bubble. So they were buying on really favorable terms because they ended up funding the things that couldn't raise money elsewhere. The other thing to watch for is that companies that have been growing, you know, every big company you talk to is suddenly saying, what's the payback as opposed to how do I deliver growth in making its own internal purchasing decisions? So the historic sales growth that you've seen in these companies may not be true um, in that it's not replicable. It's not that it's false, but it, it, it's, it's not repeatable in the current economic environment. So I think you've got to really make sure that you're focusing on sales evidence that is valid now, uh, where the capital is efficient and where you're backing some companies that genuinely have something to offer in the current environment. You know, so if you're... If, if you're an investee, investment company, company looking for investment, 
speak to those points. If you're an investor looking at what you put your money into, obviously self-select against those kind of criteria would be my advice. Thank you. I've got a, a last question from Douglas Andrews, which who asked, you know, a lot of the data we see is about American you know, valuations and fund sizes. But how does the UK market in this area compare with you know, other markets? Are we generally better or worse, I guess, at assessing risk and, uh, uh, and, and, and making good, good use of the data we have? So first of all, a scale point. So um, in the UK, VC is really the junior partner to private equity. And if you think about it, even 3i was owned by the clearing banks when it was set up. Um, also, we have the highest per capita ratio of accountants in the world in the UK, whereas the US has lawyers. Um, and I talked about this scale of the US market. So I think there is an expertise challenge and our, our policy should really be focused on things that, you know, for example, we're really good at pharmaceuticals in this country. There are certain sectors that we're, we're really strong in. Um, some of the, the computing stuff, having companies like um, arm here, you know, there are certain things that we're, we're good at and uh, there's a lot of talk about things like leveling up. If leveling up is homogenization and trying to be good at everything, it won't work. If, it, if it's focusing on what you're good at in each area, then, then it, it, it has a, a shot. I think if you look at the overall data, um, by the way, the US, we all talk about the US, understand the US is not one monolithic block. So you find really good VC on each of the coasts and a bit around Chicago and the rest of the country is actually generally worse than what you would find on average in the UK. So, you, 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 you know, there isn't one sound effect, but I would say relative to Europe, we are a cycle ahead. So we're probably a cycle behind the US, but we're a cycle ahead of Europe would be the general way that I would, I would conceptualize it. Well, th thank you very much indeed. Um, we've managed to uh, answer the questions the audience have, have given us um, and a fascinating look. Um, I was sharing with you before that um, my, my father was a submariner and served on the HMS Narwhal, which is a, a submarine in the porpoise class uh, back in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. Um, so I was very pleased to see that the Narwhal is making a comeback in terms of its importance. Uh, in this well, if we, do, if we do nothing else and can champion the, <clears throat> champion the novel, then we'll, we'll have done something uh, <laughs> something useful. But hopefully, it gives people a frame <laughs> to think about the problem. Absolutely. Um, so, I'd just like to um, repeat my thanks to our sponsors. Um, we are very fortunate um, to have people who support us um, across the range of events that we uh, managed to put on. Um, and just looking forward, um, the <clears throat> forthcoming events tomorrow. Uh, the future of building foundations in the city with energy generating assets. On Monday, a session on how the digitalization of trade and trade finance is accelerating. Um, and next Tuesday, an update on EU financial services legislation and association initiatives. Uh, do keep an eye on our website for future events, but if any of those are of interest, uh, do sign up and uh, we look forward to seeing you there. Um, and so finally, just uh, to thank you, the audience, for coming along today and for your questions and engagement. Uh, but really, uh, Neil, a huge thank you to you uh, for sharing your experience and your thoughts about uh, how to um, you know, make the most of uh, investment strategy um, and in particular to rejig our thinking from unicorns to novels. Um, a fantastic way to look at it. So thank you, Neil, um, and thank you, the audience. We'll see you again soon. Thank you.